Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for joining us again here in the StoryCraft Cafe. We've got an amazing show for you today. Join us over at StoryCraft.Cafe so that you can be notified of upcoming events and live author hangouts that we have all throughout the week. StoryCraft.Cafe. Thank you to Dabble, as always, for making this podcast possible. And we are live now in the StoryCraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner. Today, super excited to have Lisa Jewell on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called None of This is True. And you can see here I have the Kindle edition and I've got the the print copy there behind me. What a phenomenal book this is, Lisa. Um, I've been a huge fan of your work for a number of years. And with each year and each release, you just keep ratcheting up (laughs) attention and the stakes. And this book, I'll tell you what, it... uh, it's in a completely new league uh, from all of your other work. I, I could not believe what you had accomplished with this book. It's so much fun um, in a weird, twisted kind of way. I'd say, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, I love it. And I know everyone else is too. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic introduction. Well, well thank you. Um, Lisa, I like to start the show with, with some fun questions sometime. And one of okay. them... Uh, that I've uh, really been enjoying asking people lately is when you uh, were starting your writing career, uh, you know, invariably you get advice um, from other people. And sometimes that advice you cherish and you hold on to for the rest of your life and career. And it's just, you know, a gem. And sometimes not so much. Sometimes you wish you could forget advice that you had gotten or maybe you know it turned out to be terrible do you have a piece of advice that was truly wonderful that you're appreciative for having or or and whichever uh or one that was so terrible that it's just laughable well, I'm going to say that I would not be sitting here talking to you about my writing career if it hadn't been for lots of people saying lot of really great things at the exact moment in my life when I was about to start writing my first novel. And that was really, I would say, a huge part of what got me through. Well, you know, it's quite a huge undertaking to write a novel for the first time. Sure. And everyone around me, um, I didn't, I mean, I, I wasn't, didn't have any connections with anyone in publishing. Um, so I was just, you know, I was surrounded by people who knew nothing about the publishing world, but they knew me. Um, and they all just said I could do it. Um, and they all made me feel like I might be good at it. Um, so I just, yeah, a lot of what propelled me into the act of writing my first novel was just the belief of people around me. Um, in terms of Bad advice. Well, I got given some slightly wrong advice, but it worked out for me, so I can't really complain about it. But the the friend of mine who actually persuaded me to try writing a novel told me that you don't actually have 
to write a whole novel uh, in order to approach literary agents. You can just write three chapters and send the, <laughs> send the agents your first three chapters, um, which is entirely not true um, and was actually quite bad advice and would be bad advice generally. But actually, it you know, if I hadn't sent those three chapters out, I wouldn't have got the agent's interest in the first place. And I probably would never have finished writing that first book. So, I've yeah, I can't say anybody's ever really steered me down the wrong road entirely, though. I love it. Did that that friend that you're talking about, um, do I understand right that your whole writing career began uh, as a challenge or a bet almost? Yes. Yeah. Not just a bet, but a drunken bet um, at four o'clock in the morning um, after a long day and night of drinking. We were on holiday in this uh, this villa in Malta um, and everybody else had gone to bed. There was a big group of us. Everybody else had gone to bed apart from me and this girl, Yasmin. And she just got me talking about my dreams and hopes. And I said, well, one day I'd like to write a novel, as everybody says one day they'd like to write a novel. And she was the one who said, well, just do it. Do it now. What are you waiting for? Um, And in order to persuade me, because obviously I gave her all the many reasons that you could think of for not writing a novel, to persuade me into doing it, she said that she would take me out for dinner to my my favourite restaurant if I were to write the three chapters. And uh, so I did. And I got my dinner. And uh, and here we yeah, 23 years later or whatever it is. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did did you yeah. have any idea how to write a novel? Of, you no. Know, so where did you begin? Like, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. So many people have this dream, this desire. I, I think if you were to poll a room of 100 people and say, how many of you think yeah. you have a novel in you? I think the majority of people would raise their hand and say, yes, I, I think I have a novel in me. Now, you start right. you start right. asking who will attempt that, who will yeah. finish it, who will yes. be published, and that hundred people, you know, never down to one or two. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, so where did you begin? Well, at the point at which I had this transformative conversation with my friend Yasmin, um, I had imagined that I would want to write about the marriage I'd just come out of because I'd been trapped in this awful, coercive, controlling marriage for five years in my early 20s. And it was, you know, it was horrible and bleak and dark for me to live through it. But it was also a fascinating story about how two people can collide and basically destroy each other's lives. So that's what I thought I was going to write when I sat down. I thought I was going to write about this awful, toxic, dysfunctional marriage. Um, And so I just started typing and I think I got I wrote the first page and I thought, no way. This is too close to comfort. I can't do this. I can't go there. Um, And then I immediately turned my hand. I can't remember what the inspiration was, but I immediately thought, how about I write a, 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 a book about two guys sharing a flat and a girl moves in as their roommate and they both fall in love with her. Um, And that's, then I just started writing it and there was no more thought process behind it than that. I mean, it was hugely inspired by everything that was going on culturally back then. This was the nineties, cool Britannia, Britpop, London. That's, and I was living in the heart of all that. And I really wanted to encapsulate all that and, get that whole vibe down on the page of what it was like being in 90, in the 90s London. Um, but I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be a psychological thriller or a romance. I just had these people uh, living in, a, in an apartment in London and I just sort of let them loose and uh, 
yeah, it was very, very unstructured and quite chaotic. Well, that's that's kind of the fun of, yeah. of publishing sometimes is, is coming to the page with no preconceived notions. I, I think when you um, are a successful author, especially and you've gained a following and a readership, um, you th- there are certain expectations that come like next year when, when you get ready to publish your next novel there's a pretty good chance it's going to be a psychological suspense thriller, um, you know, because yeah. that that's kind of your brand. Um, but in the beginning and, and sometimes it's fun that even in the midst of a, a great successful uh, career to just kind of see where the story goes that, and that, that, that's some of the fun of the early days when there are no expectations. Yeah. But I, I think I've managed to do that throughout and that's why I actually owe the longevity uh, of my career to the fact that I was never put into a pigeonhole and I never had an editor who was expecting me to produce a certain type of book. Um, And I do think I'm still, I still feel like that whenever I start a new novel, I still feel like it could be anything. Um, I do really enjoy writing dark thrillers so i can (laughs) pretty much guarantee that someone's going to die or uh, (laughs) but yeah i think that sort of freedom that i had coming to my first novel as you say when it could be absolutely anything i wanted it to be or that fate would bring to it there is still that does still play a part in the way i write which is um it's a real luxury and I'm, i'm very very grateful that i get to do that yeah. Um, your first few books, I'm, I'm trying to remember in my head uh, about your back catalog, but you published a number of books that were romantic comedy, um, more yes. lighthearted fare. When did the switch happen to, uh, you know, more psychological suspense, thriller, mysteries, people dying? <laughs> yeah, well, I actually uh, the event I was doing last night um in St. Louis, somebody was asking me about my backlist who'd only read a yeah. couple of my thrillers. And so I went to, you know, that the page at the beginning of a book that's got your entire back catalogue listed on it. And it, was, it basically breaks into thirds. So the first third of, I've written 21 books now. So I'm going to say the first seven were romantic comedies. And then when I got to book number eight, I just realized that I'd write, I was writing a book with no romantic relationship in it. And it was it was something new. And that sort of led me um onto the next phase of my career which was writing i guess family mysteries dramas sagas um but not with no with no romance at the heart of them so i wrote about seven of those and then i started writing what i thought was going to be another family drama but i just found myself at some point during the process of writing it killing someone and then having to kind of backtrack and explain why that person might have died and, you know, was there foul play. So that was my sort of step away from the family mysteries and into the dark side. So it's been a a very gradual process rather than me waking up one morning and thinking, I'm going to change the sorts of book I write. They just sort of change themselves, really. Mm. Do do you, um, can you attribute your love of mysteries to, to anything in particular, uh, if I understand right, you had a, a pretty early love of uh, Agatha Christie. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, I spent the year between 12 and 13 years old just devouring the entire <laughs> Agatha Christie catalogue. Um, 
Yeah, I read every single book that she she wrote that year. Um, and But then I didn't read crime again. I didn't read crime again after that. In fact, I stopped reading entirely between the ages of 13 and 21. And when I came back to reading, I was in, I was reading a completely different type of book in my early 20s and my mid-20s. Um, so I never had that sort of um, that uh, foundation of reading the classic crime novels. It was Agatha Christie, and I haven't read any of the other classic crime writers at all. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I sort of... Uh, there was. I don't know if I was inspired directly by Agatha Christie, but I'm going to assume she left something in my in my small impressionable twelve year old brain that is still there to this day in terms of puzzle solving. Um, but actually, I think when I go into my novels, I'm not I'm not really motivated by the puzzle and the mystery. I'm much more motivated by um, just seeing how people behave. I, I love to just put my characters into difficult, uncomfortable, unsettling, strange situations and watch how they react. Yeah. That, that is so much fun. Um, yeah. I, I, I heard you say one time that uh, when you had stopped reading when you were 12 or 13 and music uh, had kind of taken over uh, your, it had been your obsession, yeah. you know, throughout your, your teen and early twenties. Um, does music still play a role in your writing uh or uh, do you ever have stories Sadly inspired? no no i feel really it's, it's something i feel quite sad about because all the novels i wrote before i had children i wrote to a soundtrack and in fact a couple of them were inspired directly by a particular song so i yeah. wrote a book called 30 nothing which was abs- was my homage to um disco 2000 by pulp it was very much sort of based on the storyline in, in that song And I would, at the end of writing a novel, I would have a playlist that I associated fully with having written that novel. So they were very musically inspired. Uh, And then I had my first baby in 2003. And I just had that thing of just, I need silence because I need to hear if my baby's crying. So I just stopped listening to music. um, And I just have never, ever got back into that association between writing and, and music. It's just gone. It's just not there. It's not part of my writing process anymore um which is which is sad in a way um but yeah there you go maybe maybe when once i get my house back to myself (laughs) i might find my way back to using music in my writing again well good luck with that let us know thank you (laughs) um you said that you like to take characters and put them in situations just see how they'll respond and react um is is that the way that stories begin for you um i'm i'm fascinated by the moment of creation uh you know one one of the most trite questions that writers get asked is you know where do your ideas come from and um you know that's such a worn out question but i i'm more fascinated with the way that story ideas are swirling all around us and but there's something about the ones that just pop out of the ether sometimes and just grab your imagination and what makes those more important than all the other ideas swirling around yes because that's the thing i mean with this book none of this is true i had two big ideas i wanted to explore for quite some time before i started writing it but that wasn't the big ideas didn't give me what I needed in order to jump in and get going and, you know, to work out who, who, who the story was going to be about. Um, and so for me, it's much more 
they're really tiny, tiny little things that spark the whole thing off. And in the case of this book, none of this is true. So I had this idea I wanted to write about birthday twins. I had this idea I wanted to write about a stalker, a, a one woman becoming obsessed with another woman's life. Um, big, you know, big, yeah. vague, shadowy things. But then I just saw this guy one day when I was walking the dog. I saw him sitting in his window looking at his laptop, minding his own business. And I could not get this idea out of my head. Something about him and something about the feel of his apartment or what I could see of it from the street. There was something dark going on beyond him. And I got this image in my mind that I couldn't shake of a hallway behind him leading to a door and there was something behind that door. So for me, it's I then I think that then I think, okay, now I need to know what's behind that door. Okay, right. so this is where we start. I want to know what's behind that door. There's a, another book I wrote called The Night She Disappeared, where I had this image in my mind. I, I knew I wanted to set a book in a boarding school, um, but I didn't know what the book was going to be about. And then I got this image in my mind of someone arriving at the boarding school and seeing a piece of cardboard nailed to a fence with the words dig here scrawled on it. And I pictured this person. I didn't know who it was going to be going and getting a, a spade and digging and finding something. So then I have to, what is it? What's, what is she going to dig? What is this character? I, I don't even know who the character is yet, but what, what is going to be um, in, in the soil beneath that sign? Again, the family upstairs. Um, I had this idea I wanted to write about cults. Um, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that. And then I saw this woman in the south of France taking her children to a shower block that she, she it was a private beach club, so you weren't supposed to be a member to use them. And she looked kind of furtive. And I wanted to know, why are you taking your children into that shower block when you're not a member? Why do you look so furtive? There was only one way to find out, and that was to – so it's these tiny things where I, I know that there's something, there's a question and I need to find the answer to it. Um, and the only way to do that is to just open my laptop and start typing and see what's there. So that's kind of, I feel now, what is my the opening door into me feeling ready to start writing a novel? That sort of niggling sort of what 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 is that? Yeah. So in the writing community, we like to put people in in two different camps, either the pantsers who yeah. write from the seat of your pants and the plotters who have a meticulous plan for everything yeah. before the drafting begins. It sounds like you are a pantser and you you type to find out where the story is going to go. Exactly. Is that a fair assessment? I'm quite extreme, actually. I think I'm an extreme pantser. Um, and and when I die and they come to empty out my house and try and find interesting sort of <laughs> interesting um, memorabilia sort of about my writing, yeah. they wouldn't li they would find nothing. There is no evidence in my house that I've ever written a book apart from what's on my computer <laughs> because I don't make notes. I don't have notebooks. I don't have anything anywhere that's anything to do with the book. I don't stick pictures on a board or have mood boards or have anything that I refer to. Um, it's all wow. just, it's either on, it's either on the internet and I need to find it on the internet because I don't like going out and doing research. I just, I just want to write. I don't want to do anything else apart from sit and, and put the words on the screen. Uh, yeah. So I'm an extreme pantser. I don't have anything to guide me on my way, like nothing whatsoever. Just have to keep typing words. Wow. Find out what the story is. Yeah. Um, a lot of times when when I write a story um, 
at the end of it, I will read back over it and I'll start kind of pondering what I've written. And invariably, there are themes that that come through in the writing that I never set out to yeah. include. And yeah. um, I've, I've often, uh, you know, wondered people that that have a theme in mind from the beginning and write toward that theme um, seems very counterintuitive to me, but I, yeah. I would assume because you're, you're discovering the story as you go, that themes are something that, that creep in throughout the drafting. Have you noticed yeah. that in your work? Well, absolutely precisely. And particularly in fact, with this book, I think, because obviously I've spoken now to, to many people uh, sure. about this book. I've been interviewed about it lots of times. And a lot of people have asked me about the themes in the book, um, particularly with the dynamic between the two female characters and feminism and all these sorts of things that I didn't, I didn't plan the book around that. I didn't think I want to write about feminism. And in order to write about feminism, I'm going to use these two characters and this is going to happen to them so that I can, um, so yeah, they do, they just, they're there, but you don't, like you just said, you, you don't, you didn't put them there. They just sort of evolved as part. I guess it's part of the characters' interior lives. Is people do live their lives around themes and goals and and belief systems and what have you. Um, so if your characters are authentic, then things will evolve out of your out of your characters. But no, I never I never write about themes. I just write about people, really. I I think I heard. Um in another interview that you had done uh, about this book, um, you said something to the effect of you, after you had finished writing the book, you didn't understand yourself. Yeah. What exactly happened to this character? And, um, yeah. you know, I don't want to spoil anything for people who have not had a chance to read the book yet, but I think you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, that yes. there, there were things that, that still hadn't settled for you and you yes. wrote the book. I, I, yeah, I did. I, I did get to the end of the book and I wrote this epilogue, uh, which was as close as I could get at that point to understanding. So the book is called None of This is True. And there's a lot right. of um, mistruths in the book. And there's a lot of obfuscation and lies and misdirection. Um, and I got to the end of the book and I wrote this ambiguous ending, which was as close as I could get um, to my me understanding who was lying, who was telling the truth, what really happened. But it worked. It did work as a slightly ambiguous ending. Um, but the further I got away from the book, as in, I'm talking in months, months away from the book, the more I could see that it, it wasn't an ambiguous ending. It actually wasn't. It was the truth. And in realising that that open ending was actually a character stating the truth, everything else fell into place. And then I understood how everything else had worked in the book, all the stuff when I was writing it, because I was writing it through through the form of of an unreliable narrator, um, I wasn't terribly sure. But then I just saw it. It was amazing. But too late for the book. Obviously, the book's been printed. um, And I would possibly consider now that I do understand the truth of the book and I do know exactly who was lying, exactly what happened and what didn't happen. There is a part of me that would quite like to just tweak bits of it just to just to make it work, work a bit harder for the reader so that they can see it as well. But or maybe that's the fun of the book. Maybe it's more fun 
that's what I was going to say. I, I love, um, uh, well, I, I can't say this as a universal truth, but I do love a book with a sort of ambiguous end. Um, yeah. Sometimes I, I like things to be absolutely nailed down, but sometimes a story, it, it especially if you have characters like these that just become larger than life and become part of your imagination so much um, with an ending like this, it kind of allows the story to to continue to marinate and to yeah. to stew a little bit. And, and um, you don't have the finality that comes with some books where, you know, it, it's, it's almost a depression that comes because the story's over. Yeah. Kind of lingers with you still. Well, well, I mean, it did that to me and I wrote it. Yeah. It absolutely did that to me. It just lingered in my mind until I finally got to the point of realization. And maybe that will happen to readers. Maybe maybe readers will if they think about it for long enough. What sort of thing? Oh, okay, I see now how it all fits together. Um, yeah, or maybe I'll leave it alone then. I won't rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> with um, with the the way that you write, uh, where you are discovering the story as you write, when you have complex um, uh, stories, plots that that run through, um, does it? Do you ever have trouble keeping track, especially with an unreliable narrator? Yeah. Is she telling the truth? Is 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 he telling the truth? What have I written here? Like, like, is there a anything that you do to kind of manage the story and, and what you have discovered as you go? Yeah, I think stepping away from it is really important because if you don't step away from it at those moments where you're feeling lost, like you you, you will write yourself into a corner. Um, and when I say step away from it, I don't, I, I mean, finish your day's work. Yeah. Get, I don't mean like every five minutes. <laughs> this is too difficult. I'm going for a walk. Otherwise the book would never get written. You have to do your day's right. work first. Um, and then you need to, you need to not be anywhere near it. And you need to have, you need to find out where your headspace is. And for me, my headspace is in the shower. So I will always, the minute I get in the shower, I will switch my brain into the you know, plot mode or when I'm walking the dog. Um, so those are my two places where I know that I can actually get some objectivity and a bigger worldview of what the hell it is. Because, you know, you know what it's like when you're sitting, you're just typing words on the screen. And it's really hard to, yeah. to, to feel the world that you're building and see it from different angles. Um, so, yeah, those that's when... When people read my books and they think, oh, I must be, you know, so beautifully plotted beforehand because it all slots together so well. <laughs> that, that, that's how they feel like that, because I step away from it and I go into my headspace and then I can look at it and think, OK, I think I know what I need to do now for the next two or three chapters. Or occasionally I try not to go backwards. I try to only work, work forwards. But sometimes you do know, you, you do know that the only solution is to go back and change something. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I do it. You, you can't, I just don't think you can make difficult plot work when you're sitting staring at your screen. I think it's impossible. When it's that time of the year uh, where you are drafting a new novel, um, do you do things for your personal schedule um, that help maintain um, your your uh, your your schedule and you know the, yeah. your deadlines? Do you, do you keep office hours and yes. you know a certain time of the day is scheduled off for writing? 
Yes, it's, and it's interesting actually because for many years since um, since my children were were young, I've stopped writing for the summer, um, and for for since they got older, I thought, gosh, this is really am I just being like no. My spoiling myself by taking the summer off. There's no reason why I can't work through the summer. They're not little children anymore. They don't need me sort of following them around everywhere. Um, and for various reasons, this summer I've had to work through the summer. Um, and it's just reminded me how important that Groundhog Day existence that I work through the rest of the year when my children are not in the house when I know that you know one child is at university the other one is going to school at nine o'clock and she's not going to be home till four o'clock and I know which hours I've got the, the space to write in and I know what I'm doing from one day to the next and everything happens in a lovely routine order uh, and that that's the only way I can write I've been trying to write throughout this summer but every there's no there's no order to anything there's no routine children arrive at different times and suddenly want lifts you know they'll suddenly come down at three o'clock say can you drive me to the gym um, and there's no boundaries and things are going on because it's summer. So there's always things in the diary that sort of break up my, my rhythm. So yeah, for me, the only way I can really do productive work is to have Monday to Friday, 9am till 4 or 5pm in one place, nothing else in the diary, nobody walking in and out. Um, yeah. So that, that's how I do it. And uh, I'm going to try my hardest not to have to work through next summer because it's, <laughs> It's difficult. It, in your new book, none of this is true. Um, this has one of the most fascinating narrative structures that I've seen in, in quite a while. And um, for for people not familiar, uh, the the book is uh, basically takes place as there are two characters. Uh, one of them is a podcaster, and she is doing. Uh, She's been doing a series of podcasts and then finds her her birthday twin and decides to do a podcast on her. And so the narrative structure of the book is um, is layers of narrative. You've got, um, you know, you've got a, a, a third person narrator. You've got then um, a the pieces of podcasts that are interspersed. And then you've got this documentary style that's also interspersed. Um, when did the idea for this kind of multi-layered narrative come about? And when it dawned on you, oh, I can make this work, how did you then start kind of weaving all of the pieces of that together so that it works the way that it does? Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was actually a lifesaver for this book because – it is in the early in the early chapters. It's quite a slow burn because what's happening between these two characters is very small and very quiet and unsettling in a really, really kind of um, uh, subtle. It's very, very subtle, and the yeah. build up of the tension between them and the reader realizing that not, not all is not as it seems. And I was really enjoying writing it because I love that. That's the sort of book that I really like reading. But I was also very aware of the fact that I wasn't giving the readers much of a sense of what was in jeopardy here or what was coming because I, I kind of knew, obviously, that things were going to escalate. Um, but I felt I really needed the reader to have a kick punch to the gut yeah. of, oh, God, okay, so there's not much happening in the present-day narrative, but I'm now 
looking at these. So I wrote, wrote these very, they're very visual little chunks, little clips from a yeah. fictional Netflix documentary that's made two years after the events of, of uh, the recording of the podcast. And they're very visual and they're very short. And it's just in that way of these sort of strange Netflix documentaries, little interviews with people who were part of the story uh, or who, who witnessed things or were friends with the characters um, and just saying their piece. Uh, so you, the reader then is immediately drawn into the fact that, wow, things are going to get really <laughs> dramatic around here very soon. So you kind of are lulling the reader into this false sense of, oh, it's just two women chatting in a, in a recording studio into something like, oh, Oh, I'm needing to keep reading. So it, it was really easy putting those in because every single time I could feel the narrative starting to flag or being overly drawn out, I would just wham one of those in and just randomly select some character who I thought might make an appearance in the story further down the line and get them to say something. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a real gift, actually. It was fun. It was so fun writing those scenes. And I can only imagine that as from the writer's perspective, being able to kind of switch to that documentary hat and then pull random characters that. that And they were so random. Yeah. And but it it brought texture and uh, perspective to the story that you just don't normally get because it just made it a bigger story. I think that's what I was trying to say, actually, because it was so small. Yes. The story was so small between these two women and they're in the same little corner of North London and they're either, you know, you just see them in their houses and there's not sort of, it was tiny. And then having these characters just, yeah, made it feel much bigger and wider. Yeah. When, when you, uh, when you were, you were talking about in the, in the beginning that um, it felt too small and you didn't know if there was enough there to have readers invested. Um, Do you feel like that at this place in your career with 20 something books um, published, um, do you feel like you've earned a a little bit of buy-in from readers that, okay, maybe this story is going a little slower but people have learned to trust me and they, oh, they know yeah. they know what I'm going to do. You, do, do you feel that's like that's a really good question? And I hadn't I've never thought about that before, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm really hoping you're right. That's a really nice thought, actually, that. Yeah. That my readers would have so much faith in me. And because a lot of my books, because, I'm, you know, if you're writing without a plan, your books do tend to be fairly slow burn because you're. You're feeling your way into the book. Um, So most of my books are pretty slow burn. And yeah, no, that's it. I do like the thought. But then I suppose I've always got half a mind to the the new reader, the new shiny reader who who hasn't met me yet. Um, So I kind of got to make things work for them as well. But yeah, I like the idea that my regular readers are kind of, yeah, they know how I work and they've got patience with me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I read... um uh, the book when when I got the advanced reader copy from uh, from your publisher and it it reads, uh, you know, in one particular way. And then I got the audio book a few days ago and I listened to it. And that's a completely different experience to have all of the different voice actors and you hear the podcast clips cut in and then the the documentary clips cut in. It's a very visual experience 
to uh, to yeah. listen to you know and i know that sounds weird but it's it no, really it's, it's a it's a transformative experience to experience the yeah. book that way um have you listened to the audiobook Oh, so funny because I've been asked this about all of my books, and I always have to shame, shamefacedly say, "No, I've never listened to any of my audiobooks." <laughs> but I listened to this one, and I listened to—I only meant to listen to the first few chapters just to get a feel for how it had all worked out with all and these. And it stuff, sucked like, you in, didn't it? These elements that you're that you were just talking about—I I ended up listening to the whole thing. Yeah, I listened. To, yeah, I finished. I finished it on the plane on the way over from London on Monday, and I thought it was fantastic. Um, yeah, I was completely um, sucked into it, but I also agree that I think, you know, you, you could conceivably read the book and also listen to the audio and like you say, have two completely different experiences with it. Um, because it just doesn't feel like a book. The audio doesn't feel like a book at all. It feels like you're watching a documentary with your eyes shut sort of thing. Right. Right. Well, I highly recommend you pick up the book, but I definitely recommend you get the audio book and experience it that way. Yes. Um, None of this is true is available everywhere. Now you can grab it from Amazon. You can get the Kindle edition or uh, the hardback and uh, from audible, get the, the audio book edition or go visit your local bookstore and, and support local books. Um, Lisa, if people are just discovering you um, and you've got a massive back catalog for them to dig into and all this great stuff going on, is there a place online where they can connect with you and follow along for what's coming up next? Yes, absolutely. Well, I have an official Facebook page, but I don't really go on there very often. Uh, There's lots of information on there, but if you want to connect with me personally, uh, come and follow me on Instagram. Um, I'm very communicative. Uh, interactive on Instagram. I'm on Twitter a bit as well. Um, and I'm Lisa Jewel UK on both of those. Okay. We'll uh, put links to those in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Lisa, I absolutely love the new book and telling everyone about it. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you for having me. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.